This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. The governing Ford PCs at Queen's Park have announced details of how they will implement Bill 7, the law that will allow hospital administrators to send alternate level of care patients to nursing homes not of their choosing, although not forcibly. Here in southern Ontario, those patients may be dispatched to facilities up to 70 kilometers away. In the north, they can be sent up to 150 kilometers away. And starting November 20th, patients who refuse will be charged $400 a day to stay in hospital, a number the health minister says she came up with in the interest of consistency across the province. Joining Libby to discuss, David Moucher, CEO of Windsor Regional Hospital, NDP MPP Wayne Gates, and Catherine Hoy, president of the Ontario Nurses Association. I don't even know if I have a word for it. I'm disappointed. I feel disrespected as a healthcare professional. I feel that the people that built Ontario are being disrespected. There's no value um, or consideration for their families. I can't believe that they would actually move someone that far away from their loved one. A lot of people think that because you're elderly, you can't get out of bed. You know, it's just that you need a nursing home. You have to look at the person as a whole. A lot of the people that are in these beds that may be deemed ALC are really typical medicine patients. Nursing homes are not what they were before. They're actual, like, step-down acute care beds. And I agree we do need the beds, but you have to have a system in place to support people properly in order to move forward with it. And I do not believe that the health minister has done her due diligence and has done that. Wayne Gates, what's your take on it? Well, I believe it's a heartless and uh, cruel, cruel, cruel bill. Uh, we knew from the beginning uh, that this government was planning to force seniors and those with disabilities out of our hospitals and into long-term care. Uh, we now know uh, how they're planned to do it. It's absolutely disgusting, quite frankly, that you're going to ask family members and seniors, uh, and rightfully so that was said that built this province, built this country, to ask them to go 75 uh, kilometers, 70 kilometers in Ontario, in Ontario into Burlington, those places from Toronto and in the north, it's going to be 150 kilometers. That's one one hour to two and a half hours. And there's nothing more important uh, to a family member than to be able to take care of their mom, their dad, their grandparents, their mother-in-laws, their father-in-laws. Uh, I can't say it any other way, and it almost brings tears to your eyes to know that seniors are going to be asked to leave their family net and be 70 kilometers or 150 kilometers away from their family members. What's going to happen if this bill goes through and we're hoping to continue to try to convince this uh, government that this is a terrible, heartless, cruel bill? Um, 
that they are going to go to these homes, they're going to give up, and they're probably going to die a lot sooner than they would have. Catherine, one of the things that strikes me about this is my understanding is that the staffing shortages are worse in nursing homes than they are in hospitals. Absolutely, they are. So now we're going to move. There are some wonderful nursing homes out there. Uh, Don't get me wrong, and I'm not saying that. But if you have facilities that have open beds, there's probably a reason why those beds are open. And also, those facilities aren't staffing to 100% capacity. They're staffing to the number of beds that they have open. So if they have 50% beds, they're staffing at 50%. Where are they going to get the staff as they move these residents in to fill the empty beds? It's only going to add to the burden to the people that are already there working that now instead of having 50 residents to take care of, maybe they have 100. Where are they going to pull the staff from? Now let's bring in David Moucher, who is the CEO of the Windsor Regional Hospital. So you and other hospital CEOs I have heard from, uh, you are in favor of this. Uh, uh, What do you think it will do to alleviate your situation? I can tell you since I started in healthcare, this is one of the issues that has been talked about. This is something that has really troubled the system for quite some time. And at the same time, we just can't focus on the issue of the long-term care part of the spectrum because for Windsor Regional Hospital, over the last three days, we had to cancel 11 surgeries because we don't have enough acute care beds for people to get their surgery done to be in a bed post-surgery. David Moucher, CEO of Windsor Regional Hospital, Catherine Hoy, president of the Ontario Nurses Association, and NDP MPP Wayne Gates. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Affordable housing is top of mind for candidates running in the upcoming Toronto municipal election. Whether it's about the unaffordable cost of real estate for so many, along with rising rents. We learned this past week from the Trudeau Liberals they are planning a one-time $500 subsidy for renters who qualify. But how much help will this really provide in the face of high inflation? Libby asked this of our Tune Into the Town panel, City Councillor James Pasternak, former Toronto Mayor David Crombie, and Lauren O'Neill, Senior News Editor at Blog TO. $500 total. So that's not every month. That is one a one-time payment of $500. That's quite low, I think, for... You know, rents in Toronto, the average one bedroom is nearing $2,000 a month. So I don't think it would provide much relief. Um, the other caveat is that the individuals must be paying at least or more than 30% of their rent. So if they're already in community-assisted housing, they might not be paying that much and not therefore not be eligible. Um, Trudeau says it's going to help 1.8 million Canadians, but I- I'm not quite aware of the rent situations in other cities. Maybe it's them, but I don't really see it helping a lot of people in Toronto to the extent that it will actually make life more affordable. David Crombie, it, it looks like it's uh, kind of a drop in the bucket, and we understand that the government can't be paying for everything, but is it even worth doing given that it, it looks like it's pretty marginal to me anyway? Yeah, I, I think I think Lauren captured it. It's, it. It is a drop in the bucket. 
it's a, it's a sort of a faint gesture. It could be of use for some people. What it does remind us, of course, is that, well, there's been a lot of talk about large programs coming from the federal and provincial and local governments on housing, how far we are away from any sense of reality of where we need to be. Mm-hmm. Councillor Pasternak, what's your view, and uh, do you have constituents who are screaming about the price of a rental? Yeah, I think this $500 handout is is, trying, is like putting Band-Aid on an amputation. I mean, it's, it's really not going to do much, and all it's going to do is stoke inflation, which we're trying to get a handle on. Uh, when it comes to rent, you, you need short-term solutions, but you also need long-term solutions. And, um, you know, when you, when you're going, if government is going to help out and there are limits to what it can do, you should really look at some of the underlying costs, such as, uh, utilities, uh, and where, where there could be help because we control, uh, many of the electricity and gas suppliers. So that's an area where, where we might be able to keep, uh, downward pressure on costs. But the $500, I see it just making matters worse, false hopes. And it's not a long-term solution to our rental problem. David Crombie, do you think, do you agree that it will fuel inflation? Well, uh, James is probably a better economist than I am. Uh, I think, generally speaking, you have to worry about any increase in, 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 uh, in public spending, which we need to do in some areas. But we have to be very careful because any, con- any contribution to inflation is going to make a really, a really coming difficult situation much worse. So... There's, there needs to be a while we while we spend some money on necessary things like any household, you have to be really careful about what and where and when. Okay. Well, uh, speaking of housing, let's uh, turn to the Gil Penulosa caper, and uh, he was trying to do an announcement at Nathan Phillips Square, and he had a microphone which is against the rules. And he said it's not fair because uh, the mayor, John Tory, can make announcements. And he compared it to an announcement that the mayor made about an increase in anti-Semitism. So, uh, James Pasternak, what do you think of uh, the Penulosa caper? Yeah, so it, it is correct. You cannot actively campaign on, on municipal property. And the, the, the paradox we have at the City of Toronto, it's not like other levels of government where there's a writ period. When the writ drops, you're no longer an MPP and you're no longer an MP. At the City of Toronto, in our election period, which is six months long, you continue to work as a mayor and a councillor. And I can tell you that uh, if, if we were not allowed to perform our, our municipal functions in those positions, the city would feel it. It, it is an, it isn't an odd oddity of municipal government where we continue to operate as elected officials, representative officials while we're campaigning. But the city rule is pretty strict. Toronto City Councillor James Pasternak, former Toronto Mayor David Crombie, and Lauren O'Neill, Senior News Editor at Blog TO. Fightbacks Thursday, tune into the town panel. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fightback. Coming up after the break, Michelin stars granted to 13 Toronto restaurants. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. 
Toronto is experiencing a surge in gun violence. Between September 9th and 12th, the city saw eight shootings, resulting in 11 victims, including the death of a 15-year-old teenager. Then there was the murder of a veteran Toronto police officer. Constable Andrew Hong was killed in an unprovoked shooting on Monday while eating lunch at a Tim Hortons in Mississauga. That same day, a driver was shot in a carjacking, and then three people were shot in Milton, resulting in the death of an auto body shop owner. Why is this happening, and how serious do we need to take this latest surge in gun violence? Libby began the conversation on Wednesday with John Reed, president of the Toronto Police Association. To, to say that the members of our service of his home unit, traffic service, and his family are devastated would be a complete uh, understatement. An incident like this is not common down in the U.S., but it does happen. Prefer it to take place up here in Canada, particularly here in Toronto and the GTA, um, to me, is very, very concerning. And I think I can tell you that our members, I think of the policing community as a whole, are very concerned, um, as should the public be. It's concerning. I, I think this really does start pulling at the fabric uh, of our society. And we need to, I think, as a whole, have a look at, you know, where we are right now, the where, way things have been going recently, and where do we want them to go? And, and I'd like to see the public um, voice their concern. You know, I'm not hearing the public outrage that I'll be honest, I, I expected to hear in relation to this incident. You know, we have a police officer being murdered. We have uh, members of the public who are just going about their daily business, trying to conduct a business, being murdered. And, you know, for that not to raise flags with the public, it's concerning to me. And, and, and it is important. And, and I really do want the public to think about this. Where do we want our society to go? And we need to make sure that we understand when decisions are made as far as laws, you know, at the federal level, what is going on? And that's really where the tone starts with the federal government. And we need to start looking at um, increased sentences, increased bail conditions, increased parole, um, you know, to try and move that conversation forward. We've been advocating very, very heavily for increased bail uh, reform and parole reform uh, to try and curtail some of the violence. Let us now bring in Reverend Sky Starr, who is the founder and executive director of Out of Bounds, which provides grief and trauma support to victims of gun violence. And Joseph Newberger, a criminal defense lawyer with Newberger and Partners. Joseph, John Reed mentioned uh, easy bail conditions. That's something that even the mayor has talked about it. What is your view of that? I... I First of all, I want to reflect what, what Don had said. This is a unspeakable tragedy with a tremendous loss to the uh, community, the Toronto Police Service, and the loss of a civilian life, and not to mention the others who are injured. So this is extremely serious, and, and you know my sympathies go out to everybody. But the concern I have is the immediate reaction is to then relate the criminal justice system and bail reform to a particular violent act, which... Um, I don't quite understand because every person charged with a criminal offense or a serious uh, criminal offense can't be preemptively jailed 
until trial and then kept in jail indefinitely if they think there's a risk profile that might put them at risk of committing an offense sometime down the road. So we have to be very careful, and politicians typically and unfortunately play on these events uh, to try and create reforms which only speak to a very limited number of cases. Let's bring in uh, Reverend Starr. What's your view, Reverend Starr? Well, I, I think it starts with education, and I think uh, that all levels of government need to come together to create. This is a multi-pronged um, issue. We've just finished, Out of Bones just finished doing a, a level of panel discussions on seeing gun violence as a public health issue, and I think this is where we start. Education, first of all, to the government, who needs to know that this is a multi-pronged situation that is detrimental to communities and to people in general. So it starts with prevention, intervention measures, and all levels of government coming together, including community partners who are working on the ground to solve the issue. Reverend Sky Starr, founder and executive director of Out of Bounds, which provides grief and trauma support to victims of gun violence, criminal defense lawyer Joseph Newberger, and John Reed, president of the Toronto Police Association. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Toronto has arrived. With great fanfare on Tuesday night, the world-renowned Michelin Guide unveiled its roster of the Toronto restaurants receiving the coveted Michelin star. Thirteen restaurants were awarded the honor, which also usually brings a big bump in business. There was even one restaurant that got two Michelin stars, Sushi Masaki Saito, where a meal costs $700 a person. Additionally, there are 17 Bib Gourmand Awards for more casual and diverse restaurants that provide the best value and quality for a moderately priced meal. Libby was at the event with Fightback producer Zeev Hattie and blog TO food editor Renee Suen, who talked with Libby about the honored restaurants the next day. I think the, one of the main things with having a, a an organization or a guide like Michelin that recognizes um, any restaurant with some sort of accolade of a star or a recognition, or in this case, uh, we also had a number of restaurants that got Bib Gourmands, yeah. um, that it's uh, acknowledgement, you know, acknowledgement of a team that has done a very good job that consistently, I think that's the real key word here, consistently performs and are able to cater to their guests or the clientele to give them a great experience. Because after all, if we look at the general landscape of Toronto restaurants, we have a lot. So how do you decide where to go, especially if you're one who is limited in time or even in resources? Uh, And so something like this helps a lot of diners to make those decisions. But at the end of the day, a guide like Michelin also appeals to the general public outside of Toronto, too. So we're also talking about the possibility of visitors and and more, I guess, exposure in that sense, maybe people coming all the way to Toronto to check out our fabulous food scene. So you're saying it it helps diners more than it helps the chefs and the restaurants? I feel like it's both because... both of, like, in the sense that if there are restaurants that aren't as well known or haven't in the past seen the volume of, uh, of interest from 
from hungry eaters, uh, this will definitely get them on the map. Um, I'm certain that there's a number of restaurants that we've heard of, uh, or your re- uh, just, sorry, your audience has heard of that they might have thought, oh, you know, it sounds nice. But now, given the fact that it's been recognized by another organization, it's like, you know what? Maybe next time I make a decision to go out to dine, I'll give them a chance or try them out because someone says that they they're won't great. won't get in. You know, there there's some criticism of this mm-hmm. saying, you know, we really don't need the French <laughs> validation that we're all grown up. Uh, it's a diverse seen here. One thing I could not help but notice when they had the star winners arrayed on the stage, there was only one woman there, and she was a partner of a very famous chef. She wasn't really there on her... Well, I guess she was there on her own steam, but I'm not sure... Uh, I wasn't familiar with her name, though I'm no expert. So that's one thing. And the other thing, the other criticism that I've heard is that it's very heavily uh, geared to Eurocentric cuisines plus Japanese. And we saw, yeah, a lot of uh, Japanese food honored there. Uh, and I think that's true. The big bib gourmand kind of expanded it a bit. Um, I think at the end of the day, when you look at uh, restaurants that generally fall within the category of what most would consider as a special experience restaurants, not saying that you cannot have an, a special experience um, in a casual environment, but in general, most are more refined settings. And and when we look at not just Toronto, just I guess in a worldwide sort of um, looking at that in that sort of scope, that majority do fall sort of more of the European or the Japanese, or in this case, I guess, as, as you had mentioned, the criticisms of certain types of classifications. Um, it doesn't necessarily, those are the only restaurants that are worthwhile of, of visits. Uh, but in general, when we are talking about special occasions, that is kind of what I feel as a society we have come to accept as being a a environment where you do go out of the way to um, experience. And part of Michelin, if we do look at the stars, is that every star level does signify, is this an establishment that someone will go way out of their way? Like they will travel specifically to just dine at the restaurant versus a casual, you know, Tuesday night where you might be rolling in uh, just to have a quick bite or a meal. Um, And that's kind of where most of the restaurants that fall under the stars or possibly to an extent, um, the big gourmands, uh, if they're in the higher range, will fall into a type of category like that. Blog TO Food Editor Renee Suen. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics. And we also rely on you for your valued opinions. Here are some of this week's best calls. Sita phoned from Mississauga about what she feels should be done with gun criminals. Lock up criminals and flush the key. We don't need politicians' speech, especially when something horrible happens. We need action, tougher penalty. And while they're in prison, put them to work that can benefit the society. So taxpayers don't have to pay for them to live, live, eat, and study, etc. 
Mario in Toronto phoned to say he thinks the healthcare system is in further crisis because of Ontario's premier. Money fixes a lot of things. All the money that Dougie passed over for the car registrations, for the plates, he couldn't have redirected that money to the healthcare system. He did it to get elected. Mary in Toronto also called about health care, specifically around moving elderly hospital patients to long-term care homes that might be far away and not where they want to go. Appreciate you having these intelligent people on. All they're doing is talking about the problem. When we have to move people next week, what is the solution? And now... Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week is Maureen in North York, who phoned to talk about how impactful it has been to watch the journey of the Queen's coffin ahead of tomorrow's state funeral. The silence of the crowd was so incredible. The respect... Uh, for uh, Queen Elizabeth, our former Queen Elizabeth. And, you know, she was a voice, such a steadying influence on our world through all tumultuous events. And one of the things I'm going to miss is her speech at Christmas. (laughs) Always watch that. And what happens in the future, I think King Charles will step up. I think he will do a good job. And I think the problems in that we have in our nation, I don't know if removing the monarch will really solve them. I said, but those are things in days to come. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at fightbacklibby. And call our fightback voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi. With technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.